news this week um, sort of reminds me of um, H.G. Wells's uh, War of the, the Worlds. I don't know if anyone knows the story, uh, but it was uh, written sometime in the very late 19th century, and it uh, involves a Martian invasion of the Earth. The Martians land in, in all places in Woking, in Surrey, in some common. Uh, I've never been to Woking, but I've seen pictures of the middle of it, and they've got this big 23-foot-high um, statue of uh, a Martian fighting machine. And in the story, uh, the Martians are zapping uh, human beings left, right, and center. They wipe out uh, the, um, the British army, you know, um, zap, zap, zap with a ray gun. They're invincible. It's true uh, that a couple of them are shot down, uh, but basically they dominate the earth. And uh, what they seem determined to do is sow this sort of red vegetation stuff and I think extract blood from people or something along those lines. Anyway, the story ends, I think if anyone knows the story, will know how it ends. It ends with uh, the hero who's not named uh, throughout the book, finding uh, that these fighting machines have, have collapsed and the Martians are all dead. And what's killed them isn't the might of the British army, the might of the British Navy, or a civilian militia or whiz-bang technology developed by human beings, they're actually killed off by pathogens, i.e. one presumes uh, either a, a virus uh, or a bacteria because they have got no immunity uh, against these uh, earth uh, pathogens and uh, therefore in spite of their vast uh, uh, technology, uh, they are defeated by the smallest thing uh, in God's creation on earth. Um, just one other point. H.G. Um, Wells is meant to be an inspired um, uh, in terms of this story uh, by um, a talk he had with his brother Frank uh, about the fate of the Tasmanian Aborigines. And uh, I think this might have been at the time when the last Tasmanian Aborigine was being wiped out. It was that sort of period. And now H.G. Wells was a Fabian, um, but also a social Darwinist. And he basically thought, well, uh, we do that to the Tasmanians. What do we expect Martians to do uh, to us? Anyway, of course, the, the real point of this uh, story is, um, you know, the, the role of accident um, in history, sort of ish. Uh, with Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump uh, and his uh, election campaign, of course, has been hit by the, the smallest form uh, of life. Um, you can get into an argument of whether a virus is alive or not, but I'm not going to go there. Nonetheless, he's been um, felled uh, by a virus. Now, sometimes when politicians uh, suffer um, you know, um, a disease of one sort or another or, or have an accident, there's a, an upswell of sympathy uh, for them. Um, I don't think it's going to be the case this time round, precisely because uh, the presidency of uh, Donald Trump, at least in 2020, 
has been defined uh, by COVID-19. And we can all remember him uh, poo-pooing the idea that this was a serious uh, uh, disease. Uh, It was only something like the flu. Actually, it's 10 times more deadly uh, than the flu. Um, um, uh, On Trump demonstrations, in Trump rallies, Uh, in Trump press conferences, what was noticeable is the refusal uh, to wear masks. Uh, You saw that uh, in the last presidential debate, the only presidential uh, debate, Joe Biden and and Trump. Uh, And there there was the president mocking uh, the former vice president uh, for always wearing a mask. Uh, So in that sense, you have to say, Uh, that there's a certain, I I suspect, not only amongst American Democrats, but amongst uh, a lot of us who do take this uh, disease seriously, who don't dismiss it either as a hoax uh, or something that that can be be cured with um, sun rays or, uh, what was it, Um, some sort of disinfectant uh, or some um, um, weird... Uh, drug uh, routine, Uh, those of us that are actually waiting for the vaccine uh, and do believe in locking this uh, disease down, um, uh, as has happened in China, as has happened uh, in South Korea, um, uh, as has happened in all manner of other countries with very different social systems and very different sizes, so it can be done, Uh, That hasn't happened in Britain successfully, and it hasn't happened in uh, the United States. As a result of that, in Britain, something like, and I haven't read the latest figures, but something like 40,000 people have died. Uh, And of course, in the United States, of course, because the population is vastly bigger, uh, uh, what we're talking about there is something of the region of 200,000 deaths. Um, And the precise point would be uh, that um, while young people can spread it, it is precisely those, whatever age you want to uh, call it, uh, those on the elder end of the age spectrum uh, that are disproportionately uh, affected. So, for example, this is the figures from last week from my memory. Um, In Britain, those between... Uh, one year old and 14 year, years old, four deaths. Four deaths, that's all there's been. Uh, meanwhile, those over 75, it's something like 39,000. So the vast majority of deaths uh, in Britain have been people of 75 years or over. Now, uh, Donald Trump uh, might not smoke and he might not drink. Uh, but he's 74 and he's overweight. Now, I don't wish anyone uh, uh, to die uh, from such uh, a disease, uh, but I do believe that in terms of his presidential uh, campaign, which looked like it was in trouble uh, very early on, not least because of his handling or mishandling uh, of COVID-19, I think it's now uh, hold Uh, under the water. Um, You know, if he hadn't have caught it, 
uh, then maybe he could have uh, recovered uh, the Joe Biden lead. Maybe he still can, uh, but I'm extraordinarily uh, skeptical uh, on, on that one. Um, you know, according to the latest opinion polls, we're talking about something like a 10% Biden lead with a few weeks to go uh, before the actual uh, election uh, itself. And purportedly, the vast majority of the population have made up their minds. So if Trump was going to use the Supreme Court judge and, uh, you know, Road versus uh, Wade and um, Black Lives Matter, the fact of the matter is at the moment, and I don't know what his actual medical uh, condition is. You read different reports. Is he actually receiving oxygen? Uh, is he sitting up working? Um, you know, is he having problems? Um, I, I don't know. Um, uh, either way, if Joe Biden um, had got this disease now, uh, I think there would be a welling up of sympathy uh, for him because he's visibly gone out um, before the campaign and uh, isolated himself. He's gone around the country uh, with a mask uh, and he's told people that this is a serious disease. So under those circumstances, if he got this uh, horrible uh, disease, one would expect at least that not to damage his campaign, uh, perhaps it would actually benefit uh, his campaign. Trump, on the other hand, uh, I don't think so. So I think that this is an example um, of the role of um, accident uh, in history. Um, you know, this wasn't predetermined, although you could say that given his behavior and determination to act in a very casual manner uh, in the face of this disease, it was only a matter of time uh, before he caught it. Either way, of course, it matters and it matters because what we're dealing with is a presidential system um, in a country that is still the global hegemon. Uh, and in my view, however irrational, crazy, narcissistic Trump is as an individual, the fact of the matter is his attempt to reverse the relative decline of the United States using, how should you put it, bully boy tactics, certainly trying to roll back China makes sense. Um, you know, there are, di there are different ways to manage decline. Um, you know, famously, if you take, um, um, you know, the Fabians, uh, having mentioned them, this is from a, a Roman general who fought the Carthaginians using the method of patience. And the Fabians, and we're talking about the late 19th century, early 20th century Fabians, believed that socialism was inevitable and therefore you just edge it along. Um, well, I'm of the view uh, that uh, US decline isn't inevitable. It's not predetermined um, and therefore it can be reversed. And anyone who thinks that China is somehow predestined in that Fabian way uh, to take over the world, people like Martin Jakes expressed that uh, uh, opinion. Uh, I think he will be three times wrong. Before that, he backed the so-called Asian Tigers as his model. And of course, before that, there was the Soviet Union uh, that was going to overtake uh, the United States. Either way, it matters uh, because, OK, Trump hasn't uh, gone out and started uh, any wars. 
uh, but we know that he's been threatening uh, wars. Uh, and crucially, I would say he's been threatening war uh, against Iran. Uh, I don't think that would be a rerun of Iraq. Iran has a, a massively bigger uh, population uh, than, than um, Iraq. And I suspect, you know, that in terms of the army that you would need to hold it down and to manage it, uh, it would have to number, you know, in the million plus, not the hundred thousand. But on the other hand, having basically crippled the country economically, um, a sustained campaign of, you know, absolute siege warfare, followed by a blitzkrieg that doesn't last a short time, but an extended blitzkrieg uh, that, to use a phrase from the Vietnam War, bombs Iran back into the Stone Age, could potentially uh, cause the country to fragment along national lines, or maybe you see an army uprising to take over. Either way, you could imagine uh, a Trump doing that and saying, uh, those that diss the United States, those that diss uh, Donald Trump, this is what you get. Don't try it, anyone. Uh, and that would suit Israel. Uh, that would so suit Saudi Arabia. Um, and in the United States, it would also sort uh, uh, the weird um, evangelical view that we live in the end of times. And uh, it's only when Israel rises up again and you build uh, the third temple um, it's actually going to be the second, but we'll leave that history be aside. But you build the third temple, um, and then I think Jesus comes down and smites the Jews that don't convert. And uh, anyway, it's the end of times, and you need Israel to rebuild the temple. So I think in some of the articles by Moshe Makover in the Weekly Worker, he's talked about crazy Zionist plots um, um, in Israel to blow up um, the um, the dome, the, the mosque on 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 um, on the dome, the, or whatever it's called. Anyway, the Golden Mosque uh, that's built um, on part of uh, the site of uh, Solomon's um, so-called uh, uh, temple. Anyway, Herod's temple. Excuse me. Anyway. Um, So it does seem to me anyway, as I say, um, that um, uh, uh, Biden uh, should win it. And, and then you get into uh, the speculation uh, that I was taken much more seriously a week ago than I do now of what does Trump do uh, if he loses? Because if he loses by 10 percent, if it's, a, you know, um, how should I put it, a walkover, um, well, what's he going to do? He can object to... Um, you know, um, fraud uh, by postal ballots. But, but if it's overwhelming, what difference does that make? Um, so if it was a narrow victory by Biden, uh, then you could imagine it ending up in the courts and crucially, of course, in the Supreme Court. Uh, and you can imagine that dragging on, uh, not only into uh, throughout November, you could imagine that dragging on into uh, December and who knows when, uh, but uh, as it, it would seem a Biden uh, win and perhaps then Trump has now found his excuse uh, for going peacefully. Well, uh, I would have won it 
uh, if I'd been allowed to campaign, uh, but this uh, damned uh, virus got me uh, and therefore cheated uh, the American people uh, of a second term uh, for Trump. I don't know. Um, but if, if there was a narrow result, uh, I don't think that the army or the CIA would have obeyed President Donald Trump. Um, uh, I think they would have led him out uh, of the White House uh, peacefully if they can, uh, forcefully uh, if they must, to use a phrase. So, yeah, maybe he'll blame the Chinese uh, uh, virus. Who knows? Okay. So what would a, uh, a Biden uh, presidency mean? Uh, I don't think it means uh, the outbreak of rationality. Um, you know, if we look at um, uh, recent uh, US uh, uh, presidents, both Republican and Democrat, they proved equally capable uh, of launching wars uh, and upping the ante. Um, I also think that in terms of um, uh, the US, it's still got to manage its decline. Uh, it can do it in cooperation uh, with China, uh, but I suspect uh, given the, Ch the South China Sea, um, um, given you know, China's own um, it more uh, muscular uh, assertions when it comes to Taiwan, uh, given the tensions on the Korean Peninsula, uh, given the, you know, the tensions between the United States and Russia, uh, given the tensions between the United States and Iran, uh, I don't really see any fundamental change. And, and think back uh, to the last election campaign, actually it was Hillary Clinton uh, that was acting much more the hawk uh, than, than Donald Trump. Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, was, uh, uh, how should you put it, uh, um, almost agitating uh, for something to be done, uh, for example, uh, in Syria. Um, uh, Trump's involvement in Syria uh, was pretty low-key, a lot lower-key uh, than it would have been under uh, a President um, Hillary uh, uh, Clinton. Okay, and then we have the question, of what should the left do under these circumstances? And I, I do understand the dilemma. Here you are, you've got someone who I think, you know, the, in, in their more excited moments, the left looks at Donald Trump and says, that this is the uh, dawning of fascism um, in the United States. I'm not convinced at all. Uh, in my view, fascism um, is a situation where the bourgeoisie can no longer rule uh, and therefore hands over uh, to basically um, terroristic forces that discard uh, the rule of law. And crucially, uh, what uh, fascism does is it smashes the organized working class, uh, which has prevented the bourgeoisie ruling uh, in the normal way. So we saw that uh, in classic form um, in Italy, uh, Mussolini, remember someone who used to be on the left wing of the Socialist Party in Italy, moved to the far right, starting to started to form fighting formations, the black shirts, to smash who? Uh, smash the Reds, uh, smash workers' organizations uh, who were striking, uh, but also occupying factories in uh, northern 
Italy were threatening a red revolution. Right? That's what fascism was. Uh, we saw the same thing uh, in Austria with its own homegrown version uh, of uh, fascism. And we also saw the same thing in Austria um, with the Austrian Nazis. Of course, in Germany, uh, we had uh, the Nazis themselves, the brown shirts, fighting uh, the KDP on the streets, fighting the KDP, but also the social uh, Democrats. And the aim was uh, to smash the organized working class. And of course, that's what it did. Now, I disagree with uh, lots of what Trotsky uh, uh, wrote. On the other hand, I also agree with lots of what Trotsky uh, wrote. And I have to say that his basic take on fascism is something I still adhere to. Um, I don't uh, um, agree with the official communist line on fascism, which varies <laughs> from moment to moment. Uh, but uh, it used to be uh, that capitalism was somehow evolving naturally um, in its decline towards fascism. That was a theory put forward by Stalin, the so-called third period. Uh, you can read it in um, Palm Dutt, Raji Palm Dutt in Britain, fascism and the social revolution. And then that gets replaced uh, in 1935. And we're told uh, that the job of communists is to save democracy uh, against the threat of fascism. And to do that, you have to align yourself uh, with the non-fascist, progressive uh, bourgeoisie, hence the Popular Front. And you saw the results of that in Spain, uh, that the Communist Party turns against the revolution. It demobilizes the working class, demobilizes the peasantry, uh, actually tells uh, the bourgeoisie uh, that the Spanish Empire, or what's left of it, uh, will be safe in our hands. And therefore, uh, it even dropped uh, the demand for self-determination uh, for Morocco, while General, General Franco was bringing troops over from Morocco. He was head of the Spanish army in Morocco, and he brought over, as well as Spanish troops, Moroccan troops uh, to fight. Uh, um, um, on, on the side of counter-revolution. Anyway, my point would be that the dilemma of the left comes down to the question of uh, choosing uh, the lesser evil. Now, that's something that in terms of British history, we know all about. All we need to do is look at the 19th century. It's true uh, that the working class didn't get the vote uh, uh, fully uh, until the late 20s when uh, women were granted equal rights with men. Uh, women got the vote in general. I'm being very broad brush here. Uh, um, in 1918, uh, uh, there was um, um, an age difference. Uh, but in 1918, the working class got the vote. Nonetheless, in the 19th century, sections of the working class did have the vote. And the precise tragedy of the working class, uh, here's the most advanced working class on the planet in terms of numbers and in terms of trade union organization. And what did it do? It backed liberal candidates uh, because uh, presented with uh, bourgeois progressive candidates uh, such as, you know, uh, the Liberal Party led by Gladstone who promised home rule for Ireland and social reform 
as opposed to the Tories, the aristocrats, the landlords, uh, the working class, uh, the organized working class uh, uh, tailed behind uh, the Liberal Party. And of course, uh, for those socialists who looked at that, and that included Marx, it included Engels who were living here, uh, but it included their own comrades. When they looked at this situation, of course, what was the strategic task? It had to be to form the workers into a party. Any party uh, would be a step forward. Um, so, yeah, they were looking at, uh, um, how should you put it, uh, uh, breaking the working class uh, from the Liberal Party. And, of course, the danger in that is, and that's what was exploited fully uh, by the Liberals, if you don't vote for us, you let them in. And there's a truth there. And, of course, what happened, actually, is uh, one of these ironies of uh, history. Marx and Engels thought... Uh, that uh, the formation of a Labour Party had to happen at some point. Uh, and they therefore predicted that the Labour Party would face the Liberal Party. And of course, what happened was, uh, there's a wonderful book, if you haven't read it, please do, The Strange Death of Liberal England uh, by a guy called Dangerfield. Beautiful writing. It wasn't the Tory party that died. Uh, it was the Liberal Party uh, that died. It was deserted by the working class. It was deserted by their Irish allies, and the capitalist class decamped uh, uh, into the Tory party. And the Tory party basically became the capitalist uh, party. And that's the dilemma in the United States. So the question is always, 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 when's the right time to make a stand against the Democrats? It's never now, is it? It's never when it, there's, there's no time that's going to be convenient, easy, you know, that uh, somehow... Uh, the choice that you face is going to be between the, the, the Republicans who've destroyed themselves uh, and there's only nice Democrats. And you say under those benign circumstances, oh, we'll stand working class candidates. Politics don't work like that. And the danger is precisely, I think, in American conditions uh, that what happens is that is that progressives, I'm talking about genuine progressive socialists, end up being associated in at least the minds of millions of workers, not all workers, but millions of workers with the Democrats. And as the Democrats attack the working class uh, and don't improve trade union conditions and don't uh, dole out benefits left, right and center, that during a capitalist downturn, it's the working class that suffer. Uh, well, why? <laughs> Why, why do we take any notice of you lot? You're just the tail. Uh, you're just an agent of the Democrats. And this is the party of the U.S. Uh, capitalist class, or at least part of uh, uh, the U.S. capitalist class. I would actually say, looking at where the money is, uh, it's the party of most uh, uh, of the capitalist class uh, in the United States. So I, I don't think that there's going to come a time of where the choice is easy. Um, um, but the choice has to be made, and it has to be made uh, uh, originally uh, by a minority. Um, so I, I'm, I'm in favour, basically, of the fight uh, for working class uh, independence. That does not mean never, ever, 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 ever uh, uh, voting uh, a Democrat. Uh, tactic should be open. And so it, with that in mind, it's just while while pointing out uh, that uh, uh, Engels 
um, when he was talking uh, about the situation of the working class in Britain, actually did write in a letter, that's true, uh, uh, with the suggestion that maybe the working class in Britain would be well advised to vote Tory uh, in order to punish uh, the Liberals, in order to tell the Liberals, don't take us for granted. Now, that wasn't a strategy. Uh, that was a tactic. And maybe that's just, uh, uh, how should you put it, uh, a, a remark in a letter. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the point has been uh, made. Okay, um, what now? Okay, in Britain, we have a very right-wing uh, Tory government. And I think you can see uh, how right-wing it is, not just from Boris Johnson, uh, but by some of the secondary choices uh, they've talked about making. And I know the news has changed, but they were seriously talking about um, appointing a guy called Charles Moore uh, to be the new um, um, director of uh, the BBC, uh, because you know that the Tories hate the BBC. Um, big sections of the capitalist class in the media also hate the BBC, not because it's unbiased, it's thoroughly uh, biased, but because it, it's, it's subsidized and it can produce programs that compete with commercial uh, stations in their view unfairly. Uh, and they want a free market, i.e. a market controlled by them. Who's Charles Moore? Well, he's now Lord. Uh, he was made a Lord. He is the former uh, editor of Britain's um, uh, biggest circulation quality uh, conservative paper, uh, the Daily Telegraph, or as it's known here, uh, the Daily Tory uh, uh, gra graph. Uh, I have to say, when I read it, I'm absolutely shocked uh, by the contempt uh, that the journalists must hold the readership. Uh, they just tell them a pack of nonsense, and uh, it doesn't seem to uh, cause any disturbance uh, to the readership. So I, I don't know what to conclude from it. But the other appointment they were making is even more um, bizarre. Um, they were talking about appointing as the director of Ofcom. That's the person who's in charge of uh, looking at uh, the media and its compliance with standards. So that includes Sky TV, it includes the Internet, it includes the BBC, you know, the institution that sets the standards and, uh, um, how should you put it, uh, uh, oversee, overseas compliance is an organization called Ofcom. And they were talking about appointing, and they still are talking about appointing a guy called Paul Dacre. Who's Paul Dacre? Well, he's the editor, or was the editor, of Britain's other Tory paper, uh, the Daily Mail. And when I think that the, you know, the Daily Tory graph is mad and right-wing and bzz, loopy, read the Daily Mail. Uh, cripes. It really is off the wall. Now, this is a paper, not under um, Dacre, it has to be said. But most papers, uh, I presume that's the case in other countries, most papers like The Guardian, The Times, The Morning Star, um, you know, if you go to their website, they have, here's our back catalogue. You know, look up what we were saying in 1966 when England won the World Cup sort of type idea. And students can go away, type it up and look 
what these papers were saying. You can't do that with the Daily Mail. You can do it with the Telegraph, but you can't do it with the Daily Mail. Now, my dad uh, was no, you know, uh, raving red. Uh, it's true that at some point he used to read the, um, uh, the Daily Herald, uh, which was the paper of the TUC, um, which began as a strike paper that ended up as uh, the son of all, all things. It was brought up by Murdoch. But my dad hated the Daily Mail. And I sort of I remember asking him, Dad, why do you hate the Daily Mail? And he said, well, you know, son patting me on the head. I can remember, and he did, I can remember when the Daily Mail ran a headline uh, uh, saying, hurrah for the black shirts. Uh, the Daily Mail not only supported Hitler into power, uh, the Daily Mail was supporting Oswald Mosley, uh, the leader of the British Union of Fascists. Uh, that's the Daily Mail uh, for you. Now, it's true uh, that if you take Times, it had a shameful history when it came to uh, Nazism. It, too, certainly supported uh, Hitler coming to power. But it, none of them went as far to become the actual paper, which is what uh, Dacre's paper did under Lord Rothermere, actually become the paper of the black shirts. They ran competitions for their readership to tell you uh, why the black shirts were such a wonderful idea and such a wonderful thing. And you get prizes for it and all the rest of it. Anyway, the Daily Mail fundamentally hasn't changed character. Uh, that's the fact of it. So this is who uh, the Tories are still thinking. Uh, about putting uh, um, um, to administer uh, the standards in terms of the British media. It, uh, it, I understand now that Charles Moore has withdrawn. Uh, why is he withdrawn? Uh, apparently, it's because the pay that they were offering him wasn't enough. He was actually asking for something like £280,000 a year, uh, as opposed to the present uh, director general of the BBC, who's getting a miserly hundred thousand pounds, which is isn't very much uh, actually uh, for um, that level. Either way, uh, uh, the other person in the running that I've read about is George uh, Osborne, uh, the former chancellor um, under um, uh, uh, David uh, Cameron. Uh, again, if you look at his background. Um, his background is with the libertarian right um, and the United States and and Ryan and uh, all of that sort of uh, uh, stuff. So he's again in his head uh, part of the far right. OK, hand in hand with that, what we've had is guidance uh, put out uh, by the department for uh, education. They must have spent, a, a, you know, several million pounds renaming that department. It used to be the Department of Education. So it's now the Department for Education. Anyway, they put out guidance to schools, uh, basically along the lines of saying, you must not work uh, with organizations uh, that are extremist, or promote extremist ideas, and extremist ideas include anti-capitalism, so organizations that immediately would fall uh, in that, under that category in Britain would include uh, the British version of Black Lives Matter. It would include 
uh, Extinction Rebellion. Um, it might have, <laughs> think about this, have included the Labour Party uh, up to Tony Blair uh, and him replacing the old Clause 4, uh, because from 1918 uh, uh, up to uh, the Blair years, the Labour Party was committed to replacing capitalism with socialism. So that would put the Labour Party uh, beyond the pale. Um, perhaps not now. Nonetheless, you get the general idea. It would also include, it has to be said, some of the older trade unions in Britain. Um, it's worth reminding ourselves that the one of the biggest unions in Britain is the GMB, a general and, was it GMB still? Uh, anyway, General Municipal Workers Union, and it's a general union. The rules of which still stand were partially written uh, by Marx's daughter, and include the aim of socialism. That's true with the RMT, the Transport Union, and I very so much did suspect you that very. I very much suspect that also includes uh, Unite and a whole number of other unions. Uh, so these these unions, these uh, uh, protest movements, uh, certainly parties such as the Communist Party, uh, would be considered beyond the pale. Uh, also, organisations harmful to British society, uh, organizations that threaten capitalism and the British way of life, uh, organizations that don't condemn illegal activity. Does that include those that historically look back at the suffragettes uh, and their campaign of terrorism? Um, certainly illegal acts by the score uh, in the fight uh, for women's uh, 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 votes. Um, and one can just carry on uh, uh, down the list. Um, you also mustn't promote a victim narrative. What the hell is that? I'm, you know, here I am, I'm from the West Indies and, uh, you know, my grand, grand, great grandparents were slaves. Is that a victim narr narrative? Seems so, wouldn't it? Uh, also, I think what's the most obscene thing uh, about it and this is a problem with the left, I think, as well, is it actually equates capitalism with democracy. Uh, so those that attack capitalism, it's automatically the case that they attack democracy. And there's this assumption that capitalism goes hand in hand with democracy. You know, any decent student of history who looks at the history of the 19th century and the 20th century will tell you uh, that uh, the extension of the vote, that was the the, the achievement of the working class movement. We know in Britain uh, that back in the 1830s, it's true, that the bourgeoisie were threatening revolution uh, if they didn't get the vote. Um, so, yeah, they were saying uh, that if you want another France, we'll give it to you. And uh, we know that the um, uh, uh, landed aristocracy conceded. So you went from a situation where an aristocrat uh, basically could hand out um, a constituency as a private gift to a situation of where you had bourgeois voters. But we also know once the bourgeoisie itself got the vote, the bourgeoisie did nothing in the fight for the working class to have the vote, hence the rise of the Chartist movement. And it was the Chartist movement uh, that was fighting uh, um, for uh, the vote uh, male votes, it has to be said, uh, but one person, one vote, one man, 
one vote. Uh, and its militant wing, um, the left wing of the Chartist movement, that was the one that was basically saying um, peacefully if we can, forcefully uh, if we must. And it also uh, developed something called the social charter. In other words, it went beyond the slogan of simply calling for a democracy and actually said, well, if we win democracy, it has to have a social content. And Marx certainly looked at the Chartists and said, well, if they win uh, and they win with this uh, social chart, that means the rule of the working class. Um, but the bourgeoisie were not allies uh, of the working class uh, in that fight. The bourgeoisie conceded to the working class when the working class was either threatening or uh, it was controllable. Um, and that's what we saw. And that includes in the 20th century when women got the vote. Uh, um, they, de they deliberately calculated that if we give middle class women the vote, uh, that will help push down uh, um, the impact uh, that giving the vote to uh, male workers um, um, uh, will, will have. Uh, in other words, it was a cold, calculated uh, act. It had nothing to do. Uh, with capitalist uh, uh, progress. Okay, um, so yeah, in terms of um, um, the the government, I'm I'm just emphasising uh, how far to the right um, it is, and how far to the right it's clearly wanting uh, to go. Okay, just a couple of quick things, just to note. Uh, Brexit talks, which were coming to the crunch in the middle of this month, have now been put off a month. And what that indicates to me is the British government wants a deal. Um, if it was, you know, blasé about it, it would let it go to the wire. It would either get a deal or not get a deal. Uh, but so what sort of tired by idea? So they've delayed it uh, for a month. Um, you know, who knows? Uh, but to me, the fact that they've delayed it shows that they want a deal. Um, yeah, just lastly, in terms of how crazy this uh, government is, it did a brainstorming uh, session. Uh, what to do with migrants? As you know, uh, hundreds of, uh, and it is hundreds, it's not thousands upon thousands, uh, of migrants have been traveling the short distance over the English Channel from France uh, uh, over to, um, uh, Kent, um, and uh, basically uh, the government, along with the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph and other such papers, have been saying something must be done and what you've got to do is put migrants off. And clearly the Tories are impressed uh, by Donald Trump and they're impressed by the Australians. So the Australians get hold of uh, illegal uh, migrants and dump them on some island. Uh, out, um, you know, uh, up north somewhere, uh, you know, out of the way, you know, where they can rot. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, se separates kids from their families, um, builds a wall, which of course is purely uh, symbolic, uh, but generally demonizes uh, uh, migrants as being rapists and criminals and uh, a, dan a danger uh, to the American way. And we've got the same, not only rhetoric now, but we've got the same crazy proposals to actually make some of the most vulnerable people on the face of the planet suffer 
for their suffering. Uh, clearly, people are desperate to, one, get out from where they were, but desperate to get uh, into Britain. Why? Well, I'd say the reason I'm saying this is because um, English uh, is a global language, and I suspect a lot of them uh, know some English, but also the fact will be uh, that in terms of migrant life, it's a big advantage if you've got relatives um, in a country who can actually support you. And so if you take Britain, it's got X number of migrants from X number of countries. If you come to Britain, um, go to London, there'll be uncle so-and-so or um, who knows who um, uh, to help you out. Either way, uh, clearly these people um, are uh, desperate. And what's the government proposing to do? Uh, dump them on some island in the South Atlantic, um, open up, um, you know, decommission ships. That's what they used to punish uh, criminals uh, um, uh, in Britain uh, with back in the most brutal periods uh, of uh, the 19th century. Prison hulks, you find it in Dickens. Bung them on some island up in uh, Scotland uh, uh, somewhere. Well, of course, the best thing to do uh, with migrants is allow them to integrate, uh, allow them to work. You know, <laughs> that's the best thing to do. Um, anyway, from our point of view, uh, what we emphasize is the two-sided nature uh, of this question. Uh, and we, we don't simply say uh, more people, uh, the better. We, we also stress the necessity of organizing people who come to Britain in strong trade unions. We know the role uh, of mi that migrants play when it comes to undermining trade union conditions and the pay and rights of workers. So we don't simply say, you know, refugees welcome here, refugees welcome here, yes, uh, but join a trade union, go out and recruit uh, uh, these people, organize them. Uh, that's the correct uh, approach uh, to take. Okay, I wanted to end um, with a, mm, not too long, I hope, uh, but might be a little bit convoluted uh, report on um, elections um, to the Labour Party's National Executive Committee. The Labour Party, as, as you know, in Britain is a federal party. It consists of uh, trade union affiliates. So I think something like six million trade unionists are affiliated uh, uh, to the Labour Party. Uh, it also consists of uh, socialist societies. Uh, that includes the Fabian Society. It used to include the Independent Labour Party. It used to include the British Socialist Party. Uh, which um, went into the Communist Party of Great Britain in 1920. It was the main component uh, of the CPGB in 1920. Uh, but it also includes, since 1918, individual uh, members. So today there are something over half a million um, individual members um, of uh, the Labour Party and they are organized in, on a constituency uh, basis. So we have first past the post in Britain and each constituency has an MP and each constituency has a, um, a Labour Party that might then be broken down into ward organizations. Nevertheless, uh, uh, those CLPs 
um, elect together uh, nine representatives for the individual members onto the Labour Party's ruling National Executive Committee. Uh, I think that consists of something like, this is from memory, so I'm no doubt wrong, but something like 30 people. So there will be the leader sitting there, um, there will be someone from the Parliamentary Labour Party, but there will be uh, nine um, CLP representatives. Now, usually it's the case uh, that the left will win all of those seats. Um, unless the left has cocked it up, uh, they will dominate uh, um, the CLP um, um, seats. So that usually they get nine of them. Uh, that's that's been the case historically with some um, uh, various aberrations. This time, though, this year, uh, under Keir Starmer, uh, what they've done is introduced single transferable vote. Now, if anyone wants to know what single transferable vote is, we can talk about that later. Suffice to say, the calculation is uh, that what this will do will ensure that instead of the left having nine seats, uh, the left will have six seats uh, um, and um, the right has uh, uh, four or maybe it will be seven uh, or something along those lines. But the point would be they introduced this system in order to uh, weaken left and strengthen the right. And at the moment, the right most likely has uh, a majority and with these elections, it would um, increase uh, uh, that uh, majority. So it won't, it won't swing it from left to right. Uh, this is about strengthening the right wing majority. On the other hand, um, uh, that's not guaranteed because we've got elections at the moment uh, for a number of trade union positions. And the, the post for General Secretary of Britain's largest trade union now, I think, which is Unison, which is sort of local government workers, plus, plus, plus health workers and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the leading candidate uh, is someone from the rank and file and is a left winger. They've got by far the biggest number of nominations. Uh, in other words, the Unison, if it was under Paul Holmes, would no doubt send a left-wing delegate. Anyway, my main point is uh, that there's a lot of argument going on on the left in Britain uh, about who to vote for, um, because precisely with um, single transferable vote, in my view, uh, it gives the left an opportunity to stand on a principle basis or something approaching a principle basis uh, and actually uh, it not to make uh, any difference to the left-right balance on the NEC. Either way, what we've got is an organisation that used to be called something along the lines of Centre-Left Grassroots Alliance, or was it Grassroots Centre-Left Alliance? This is some sort of shadowy organisation that meets behind the scenes. It consists of organisations such as Momentum, um, organizations such as the Labour Representation Committee, uh, Red Labour, uh, Campaign for Labour Party Democracy. It's basically the official left. It's the safe left. These people have chosen six candidates and are urging comrades on the left uh, to vote for these six candidates. Now, the nominations um, for the CLP's 
uh, in terms of these candidates is now closed. So we know how many nominations each candidate has got. And the leading candidate by far um, and is the, um, what is now called uh, the Grassroots Alliance. Um, they have got, um, I think, I think I could be wrong. I think they got 42% of all nominations. I think I could be wrong. That's the figure I noted down. Uh, the leading uh, candidate is a former MP, Laura Pitcock. Okay. Now, in terms of um, the Labour Left Alliance, I'm not going to go into who they are. Uh, suffice to say, they are to the left of this uh, grassroots alliance. Also has chosen uh, a slate of six, and they offered to negotiate with the official uh, soft left. Uh, interestingly, and I think healthily, uh, they selected their six candidates. Uh, on the basis of sending out questionnaires uh, to people that wanted to stand and actually had uh, husting meetings and had a vote in, of their membership uh, for these candidates. So instead of it being behind closed doors and a result of uh, behind the scenes negotiations between various factions, this was done openly and this was done according to some political criteria. Now, it has to be said, when it comes to the six, the official six, I'll call them, uh, none of them, none of them uh, has dared oppose the witch hunt that's going on uh, in the Labour Party. Uh, as you know, thousands of members of the Labour Party have been um, um, illegitimately expelled, usually under the cloud of anti-Semitism. Maybe they open up and accuse you of anti-Semitism and then expel you. This is the usual thing of bringing the Labour Party into disrepute. Uh, no one's been expelled apart from a handful uh, of people because of anti-Semitism, because there ain't anti-Semitism running riot in uh, the Labour Party. But there is a witch hunt. And these six, these people then oppose the witch hunt. And indeed, some of them clearly uh, were prepared to go along with the witch hunt. And that's what, of course, the old NEC, the, the old executive committee under Jeremy Corbyn did uh, with the blessing uh, of Jeremy Corbyn, you know, uh, under pressure from the right wing press and the liberal press, the BBC, Corbyn conceded ground and through allies and friends to the witch hunt. So an old friend of uh, uh, Corbyn, uh, the ex mayor of London, Ken Livingston was thrown to the wolves an ex-friend of Corbyn's, Chris Williamson, was thrown to the wolves, uh, you know, and one can carry on uh, 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 down the list. Uh, in effect, Corbyn became an agent of the witch hunt. Either way, uh, it's clear uh, that these six people are not principled uh, Democrats, and they're certainly not principled uh, socialists. If we look at the six that have been chosen by the Labour Left Alliance, I've got all sorts of differences uh, with these comrades, but I would say uh, that I do consider them to be sincere. I do consider them to be socialists. And I also uh, um, admire uh, and fully support their opposition to the witch hunt. And they are openly prepared to say, I oppose the witch hunt, which is an act of courage at the present time in the Labour Party. 
uh, when we're living in a climate of fear, uh, that if I open my mouth and I say things in a particular way, I get expelled. Uh, a lot of people are holding their tongue. A lot of people are basically, I'm not going to talk about the witch hunt. I'm not going to talk about Palestine. I'm not going to talk about Israel. I'm not going to talk about the Jewish labor movement. Um, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. That's uh, the case. So it's quite remarkable uh, that if we look at the leading uh, candidate of uh, the Labour Left Alliance in this atmosphere, uh, Roger Silverman has got 65 nominations. That's 65 constituency Labour parties. Remember, that's out of what, 650, is it, in Britain, constituencies, thereabouts. Uh, that's a remarkable achievement, uh, um, given that he's coming uh, from outside uh, the official left uh, in the middle uh, of uh, a witch hunt. So we in the Labour Party Marxists will 100% support uh, these candidates. And we certainly urge all members of the Labour Party to put them at the top of your list. After that, though, uh, we would actually um, um, disagree with the approach taken uh, by these comrades uh, in the Labour Left uh, Alliance, because what they're saying, uh, not that it, it uh, uh, is going to matter, I suspect, big time, but what they're saying uh, is beneath their six, uh, vote uh, for what I will call the flotsam and jetsam uh, other individual left-wingers, uh, individual left-wingers who've managed to get enough nominations, which is just a handful, from various constituencies, vote for these people because these people's politics are better, and that's no doubt true, uh, than the official left. The Labour Party Marxists are saying, no, that might be the case, and it no doubt is the case, uh, but vote for Labour Left Alliance first, then vote for Grassroots Alliance. Why? Because there's an awful uh, campaign going on at the present time from the official left, uh, accusing the uh, Labour Left Alliance of being ultra leftist, of splitting the vote, of damaging the chances of the left. All of this is nonsense. Anyone who knows anything about a single transferable vote knows that that's not true. Nonetheless, we also think it's politically advisable uh, to actually uh, enter negotiations, if not this year, uh, next year with this official left. We want a situation of where it, the official left concedes places to us uh, because uh, we, as part of uh, the principled left in the Labour Party, do command uh, support in the constituencies. And if you want your people elected with our votes, then you've got to make concessions to us. And we not only want places on a joint list. We also want to be part of an open process, a principled process of choosing what candidates we jointly put forward. And we want candidates who stand against the witch hunt and who stand for socialism. And that isn't some nice form of capitalism. It's anti-capitalism. That's what we want these people uh, to stand on. Now, we had a sharp argument um, in the Labour Party Marxist steering committee uh, about this question. Um, and I think, you know, we should be perfectly open uh, about that. Uh, but we ended um, that argument 
uh, with a five to one vote. I mean, five to one, that's five people, not uh, five to one in some proportionate sense. So this is the steering committee uh, vote. Uh, the provisional central committee of the CPGB uh, agrees with the five uh, and therefore it disagrees with one of our comrades on the Labour Party Marxist steering committee. And we disagree and we've urged uh, the Labour-Left alliance, even at this late stage, we've urged its leadership to rethink. We think it's in the best interests of the Labour-Left alliance for it to rethink its approach. Uh, as I said, I, I, this isn't going to um, uh, mean uh, that the, the, uh, the leading body of the Labour Party um, falls into the hands of the right. It is already in the hands of the right and it will remain in the hands of uh, the right. What we're fighting for uh, is to shift the left to the left. Uh, that's our uh, perspectives. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, we would envisage in the future standing uh, Labour Party Marxist uh, candidates uh, either on our own list or in a joint list with other comrades on the left. That's a tactical uh, question. But for us, uh, the main thing about elections isn't getting elected, even when it comes to something like the Labour Party National Executive Committee. It's about educating members, it's about training members, it's about organising uh, uh, members. And what do we want to educate people in? Not in the single transferable vote. Uh, what we want to educate them in uh, is Marxist uh, politics. Uh, that's our uh, perspective. So anyway, um, a bit of a, um, uh, a strange uh, ending, uh, but maybe uh, given this particular forum, it might be a controversial uh, one because I know that there will be comrades um, attending today uh, who disagree with uh, uh, our approach, um, uh, but now's the time uh, to talk about it. So I'll hand over uh, back to uh, Stan Keeble.